0: Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 103. Today is Sunday, July 16th, 2017. And today's guest is an American organist, Daniel Segner the director of music at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Glen Ellen, Illinois. Daniel is a graduate of Alparaiso University where he earned his bachelor of music degree in church music and organ performance. Most recently he served as principal organist for the first United Methodist Church at Chicago Temple in Chicago. Daniel currently teaches piano, organ and voice. Some of his notable past performances have included the opening recital for the Pipe Organ Encounter, guest artist for Paul Mann's organ recital series, and recitalist for the organ rededication service at Augustana Lutheran Church in Hobart, Indiana. Collaborations have included performances with Chorus Angelorum, Civitas, and uh, with the Valparaiso University Symphony and Laporte Symphony orchestras. In 2015 he performed alongside the Valparaiso University Chorale in their summer tour of Germany where he played in Lübeck, Utrechtburg and Leipzig. While at Valparaiso University Daniel received the Ronald G. Reidenbach Prize in Church Music and the Signature Artist Award. He's an active member of the AGO and American Choral Directors of America and the Organ Historical Society. In this conversation, Daniel shares his insights about knowing your instrument well, being really good at one thing, and becoming an advocate of pipe organ. Let's go to the show. So Daniel, I'm so delighted we're finally having this conversation. You are in Illinois, and I'm in Lithuania. We are about what seven or eight hours apart, probably, mm-hmm. and it's a big time difference. And uh, we're having a wonderful day here in Lithuania. How is the weather uh, in, in Illinois, by the way?
1: It's perfect. It's uh, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. It's just, it's great here.
0: I like to imagine that uh, we're having a uh, a cup of cappuccino with our guests, uh, you know, uh, talking and chatting about the things that we both enjoy and love, about pipe organ, that's wonderful, right? Exactly, like, yeah. maybe, uh, your uh, your, uh, how you first fell in love with this instrument um, and uh, your challenges, maybe something is difficult, right, and you overcome mm-hmm. those challenges, those will be the things that our listeners will enjoy the most because they are struggling with similar things that we are uh, too, right? Or we were in the past. So Mm -hmm. any advice and inspiration you can give to them will be very, very appreciated. Thank you so much, uh, Daniel, for for joining me in this conversation. You're very um, generous with your time and wisdom and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, being here.
0: So, how about this early story? Do you remember how you first fell in love with the organ? Can you share with us?
1: Um, well, so I um, started out um, singing in a, a men and boys choir in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, at Christchurch Cathedral uh, under the direction of um, organist and choir master, a former organist and choir master, Dr. Frederick Burgermaster. So I came into the organ from the choral, side of things and um at that church we we're really lucky um there are two huge instruments tracker action uh one is in sort of the french style and one sort of the german baroque uh, the front organ that mostly accompanies the service it was this huge wolf instrument and so we would be in the choir stalls with this huge organ on either side of us and then in the back would be this uh you know this you know, german baroque tailor and booty instrument and uh all of these organs were possible through this really generous foundation in the uh, in the city of Indianapolis that made these instruments possible and so um you know, not only because I was singing with the instruments, but because, you know, we had really fine musicians who were playing them. So Dr. Frederick Burgermaster was, I mean, he's a titan of the, um, of, um, the choral world and also the organ world, um, but really it was his assistants who really um, spoke to me the most. Um, so when I first started, Alistair Reed um, was um, one of the organists, um, and then it was Marco Petrucic. Um, and then David Senden and David Senden and Marco Petrichik were my teachers um, for various points throughout my career. So, I, you know, when I was about ten or eleven, is when I really started to fall in love with the organ. And you know, I took piano and all of that, and I realized that I wanted to play lots of instruments all at the same time. So, organ was the best vessel for it. And it's it's easy to get inspired when you see such a magnificent instrument. Every day, basically. So, I mean, that's really how it started, was being in the choral side of things with magnificent instruments, with incredible players.
0: You know, it's good you mentioned those mentors, right? Early mentors that Mm -hmm. um, probably made a big influence on you and your your personality as well in the Mm -hmm. future, right? So, um, without those people, probably any of us wouldn't be where we are, right? Those mentors... And um, sometimes young people come up to us, right, right? and uh, ask for advice and uh, expertise, right, to give Mm -hmm. some tips and share some knowledge. And today we're sort of also can become mentors to to youngsters, right, to younger students and and peers sometimes even, um, which is very, very valuable, then we remember when we were little, right, the mm-hmm. same reverse position, right, they, they come up to us to, to look, at, look up for inspiration. And mm-hmm. I think that's very generous if people can do this, you know, with their mm-hmm. time and knowledge and expertise, because yeah. it moves us forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I so couldn't Daniel, agree more. Yeah, so Daniel, um, did you have any other in- interests besides music when you were little? Um.
1: Some I, I I tried I tried doing sports and all of that. Um. When I when I mostly through in school I was um I was big into scouting and I did a lot of camping. Um, mm-hmm. I I spent most of my high school career hiking and uh, being in the outdoors, uh, wilderness survival things like that. Um. Once I went off to college, it sort of, it really, that sort of, that part of my life really fell off because I, you know, music became basically everything. But um, I I think what I really liked about um, my other activities besides music was that uh, I don't think I realized it until um, I was pretty far into um, my career that uh, basically everything that I did was somehow connected in some way to. Um, back to the organ um, and to music in general. So yeah, in, in general, I mean, I, you know, when you, when you sing downtown in the city um, for this choir, I mean, it was a pretty demanding um, experience. You know, we would sing two broadcasted services each week. So we'd sing Thursday night uh, broadcasted evensong service in the Anglican tradition. And then Sunday morning we had the 11 a.m. service. Uh, and so, you know, having to do basically new settings of all the canticles and um, singing all of that became sort of, I mean, especially when you get to the sort of the upper level of the choir and you're expected to have um, a better command of the music, it really sort of does take over a lot of your life. Um, And so that's why I didn't, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really do a whole lot besides uh, music and in that regard, at least.
0: It seems to me, Daniel, that people who are, introduced to the choir and vocal music uh, at early age be, can become better musicians. Don't you think?
1: So, something like that. I, I find that, especially when it comes to playing hymns and um, understanding the need to breathe, um, because I always tell people that, you know, the hardest part about playing the organ is really is playing the hymns because uh, you have to think of the uh, instrument as a living, breathing thing, because it it, it is, I mean, the organ has a huge lung in it that's producing all of that air. And um, I think, I I think one of the things that's always sort of set me apart was that because I grew up singing the hymns and especially at a really high level in this choir that um, I really felt like I I was, I had, I could embody the hymns and the texts when I accompanied them uh, when I was sort of playing full time at that point. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, being at the choral side of things, I think, is a really helpful um, aspect of your musicianship that shouldn't ever be disregarded, especially when you're playing the organ.
0: And even if you are uh, elated in life, if you have an opportunity to join the choir, it never hurts, right? Because you mm-hmm. learn sighting, you learn to uh, develop your um, pitch, right? Uh, mm-hmm. air. It's like a form of air training, right? You do solfege probably in, in those mm-hmm. choir schools how was it with, with sight reading by the way early on with you did you practice sight reading um,
1: yeah I, I, sight reading's always been one of my actually favorite things uh, my students that i teach don't seem to like it as much as i did but maybe that was because i you know i i don't know I, I i had that choral thing as well so when it came to switching to the piano and organ it was sort of it made sense to do all the sight reading things but uh yeah, I, I really I I've always loved sight reading and and singing especially uh sight reading is is um really really easy for me, especially when I when I do Bach and um it, the the baroque late baroque era because uh there's there's rules in in how you sing and especially when you're singing tenor or bass, there's only a few places your voice you know your part can go. And so knowing all those things is really helpful to sing when you're singing that one line all by yourself because, uh, you know, if you have to turn the page real fast, you I mean, your part can only go a few directions anyway. It's not like in some of the modern compositions where all the rules are out the window and you're, you could possibly be singing or playing whatever next. And, um, that really translated well to, um, uh, when I was playing full time as an organist and as a keyboardist, um, is that, you know, knowing the rules, um, helps when you're sight reading, uh, cause you can just, uh, because, you know, when you're sight reading, it's not, you're not expected to have, like, mastery of any of the subject. You're expected to just go on through and um, what happens is what happens. And as long as you keep moving, it's, you know, you're doing fine.
0: It's like uh, connected with some form of musical intuition, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you feel, you sense what is coming up next, right? Mm-hmm. So right now you're an organist. You're dealing with this all the time, right? Mm-hmm reading and learning new new work which is also part of, of the uh, training too so I think it's very very good to sing those single melodic lines even today probably not too many people do that but sing each line in a like choral prelude let's say or, mm-hmm. or a few right uh, mm-hmm. literally sing with your lungs and that that uh, gives you a lot of insight into how the piece is constructed. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: I can't remember who who my teachers used to tell me um, but one of them said when I was when I was attempting to first memorize a fugue they used to tell me that uh the best way if you know it is if you can play it away from the keyboard. Play one part and then sing the second voice without playing it. So you know, away like on a desk, and um, and then try to hum a, the the second uh, theme as it comes in. I don't, I don't know, I don't know about that. I ever necessarily succeeded in doing that, but uh, it was it's an interesting way to think about how you can connect your your voice to your ear to what you're playing.
0: Because uh, it, for for voices in a fugue, like in the traditional mm-hmm. fugue are like four people having a conversation, right? At mm-hmm. any given point, one, one voice is more dominant than the others, right? Uh, more pronounced, maybe. Sometimes two, if they have a duet, right? Um, the other two are stationary or listening, right? Or even uh, resting uh, with rest. So it reminds us of real musical conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. And, um, you know,
1: the, the more that you can think about Fugues' um, independent voice parts, the better. I mean, and, you know, I, I tell my choir this all the time. It's, you know, it's it's not a battle. We're a team. And, you know, we have to sound together and, and, and in sort of a single sort of wall of sound. Um, and especially when it comes to playing Fugues, I mean, I, I've always really appreciated whenever I hear recordings of other organists, Um, as well, is that, you know, it's not just that they have a command of the fugue, it's that they have a command of the musicality of the fugue. That is, you know, if you're going to do one sort of, um, if you're going to do a lift at one point in the fugue, there better be that same lift in every single voice every single time Mm -hmm. it comes in. It, it, It comes back to the fundamentals of um what it sounds like because that's how a singer would do or that's how an instrument would play it um is that they would do exactly the same thing because it's not it's not four independent voices it's four of the same voices coming in at different points saying the same thing it's a it's a real, I, that, I mean that's why fugues are so interesting to listen to and when played really well it's it's like a chamber ensemble um yeah i, I completely agree with that
0: When you mentioned learning Fugue voice-by-voice, it reminded me of the technique that my professor uh, uh, George Ritchie, who is now retired uh, from UNL, uh, he also learned this technique from the German blind organist Helmut Walser. And, uh, you know, when you're blind, you have to develop some other techniques, how to memorize things, right? how to play. And mm-hmm. one of the things that he learned, uh, Helmut, was, was playing voice-by-voice uh, mm-hmm. voice. and maybe a short fragment, right? Maybe maybe like um, like a, a couple of measures and then assistant or a student of his would play another voice and then mm-hmm. he would play back and the third voice and play back and the thir- fourth voice and so forth and then uh, Walcher would play combinations of those voices, right? Mm. And, mm-hmm. and that's what he would discover how the pieces put together. Basically, mm. fragment by fragment, but also line by line.
1: Right, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And also, you know, when he was later in life, you know, Walcher was very famous for his Bach recordings, right, on historical German organs. -hmm. Later in life, when he was playing, let's say, a preludent fugue on another organ, which he learned in in his youth perhaps, he just asked his student, Oh, in this fragment, like measure 22, the alto, is it a quarter note or a dotted eighth note and a 16 note rest? You see? Mm -hmm. Those details, maybe uh, they escaped him uh, whether articulation was uh, this way or that way. But other than that, he knew the pieces inside out because of his method of learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very strenuous. I don't, I don't do this. I, I only learned this, this with this method one piece. This was uh, the fugue. Uh, by Bach, from C major, C major president Fugue, uh, BWV number five hundred forty-seven, <coughs> the fugue mm-hmm. only, the mm-hmm. the five-part fugue, uh, where the pedals comes in later on with augmentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Duck Rich told me, you know, you should you should learn just one piece just to to get a feeling what it what it feels like <laughs> to be mm-hmm. in Helmut Wapsis shoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 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 Daniel, how do you learn pieces today? Is it different from your uh, early days, right? The the methods that you apply today, how do you start learning a musical organ? Music? <clears throat> well, uh, it
1: depends on the difficulty of the piece. Uh, I mean, especially when I was younger, I, I did that puzzle piece instead of, I I did the sculpture instead of puzzle piece method where, you know, when you're building a sculpture, you just sort of chip away at it until you have the picture that you want. Um, now more, more so now I, I do sort of this puzzle piece idea where I just take little fragments out of context and work on them. Things that I know that I can't just sight read my way through and I really work on them. And, uh, what I do is I, 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 especially now, um, and, you know, I think a lot of things they don't tell you in school, uh, especially in college and in grad school and things like that, is that uh, when you're out in the real world and you have other things going on besides just playing, um, your practice time is uh, very valuable and um, you don't have a lot of time to waste, uh, you know, goofing off as much as we might have or may not have. I mean, I don't know about what other people did necessarily. Um, But nowadays when I practice, I I go in with a specific goal and I practice really hard on what my goals are and I don't stop until I've met them. And uh, my piece is really sort of, I, I don't really start putting together something until about a week or two before I have to play it for real. Um, I I allow the little pieces to um, sort of brew and percolate for a little while um, because when you have a puzzle and you're putting it all together, you always start with the corner pieces, then you have all the sort of middle section, and then you just sort of, everything sort of lies flat and in place. And if you've done your preparation correctly, the piece always comes together. And that's sort of been my experience is that, and even in my more difficult pieces, that that's been what's most helpful to me. Um, especially in the last year, I would say with, you know, how crazy the professional world is, um, in terms of practicing, uh, cause there's, you know, there's not just, you know, practicing demands on you. There are, there are other things, there's administrative work, um, there's rehearsals. I mean, so your personal practice time to learn pieces, especially pieces, you're not going to end up playing in church, for instance. Um, you know, those have to take a very sort of specific, uh, plan of action to get them done because otherwise you'll fall into um your old habits which in my case were just playing it from the beginning and each week and hoping that it would improve each time and that's it, it really it doesn't that's the that's just that's what happens it doesn't get really get better you have to really focus on what you're going to do, you know, have a plan, you know, say I'm going to work for measure 17 to 20. And it's just going to be those three measures because they're super hard. There's three registration changes. I have to change manuals and, you know, the box has to close on measure 14 or what, you know, so all of these things you have to really take apart piece by piece um, because your, your brain really shouldn't have to handle that much. It needs to be a little bit more intuitive. So taking things apart is really the, is the way that I practice now.
0: It's, it's probably related to what Bruce Lee said. Do you know the famous martial artist, uh, Bruce Lee? Uh, he said, uh, I'll, I'll have a citation here. He said, I don't fear a man who practices uh, a thousand kicks uh, in one day. Mm-hmm. I fear a man who practices one kick in one thousand days. Mm, you see? yeah right just one kick one 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 technique right and over uh, maybe three years he, mm-hmm. he would perfect it so that's the same with, with what you're talking about it's probably better to learn three measures or four measures at a time in your entire practice session for the day mm-hmm. but master it thoroughly, right that's tomorrow it will be another fragment, right? You mm-hmm. just have to refresh it perhaps a few times. Uh, then, as you say, going from the beginning until the end and hoping that somehow it will be, become better, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, ex- the, exactly right. Exactly
0: you right. You can it and do this in fragments. But it's it's so exceedingly um, difficult for the mind to to do this because... As a musician, if you have a musical and intuition, right, you love the organ not because of this little fragment. You Mm -hmm. love this piece because of the entirety, right?
1: Exactly. So you
0: want to play it all all the way through, Mm -hmm. but you have to postpone this pleasure for later probably.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that makes the, the learning process uh, really solid in your mind if you put the work into it, because um, the more that you practice something the same way, uh, it becomes sort of ingrained in you. And I, I think there's sort of, I mean, this, we kind of get in, when you practice the same thing over again, you sometimes can fall into that muscle memory thing versus actually memorizing something. And so, you know, I think a lot of teachers give this advice, and certainly my teachers gave me this advice, but, you know, if you're ever working on something for too long, you start putting pieces ahead of it and pieces after it, you know, go back one measure or add a measure after it. And it'll change the way that you play it because you're having to think about, Oh, this other thing. And suddenly you're allowing your mind to just sort of expand a little bit. Um, because, you know, one of the things that happens, um, in the learning process, not only with just putting the pieces together, is that, um, if you allow your muscle memory to sort of run rampant when you practice little pieces over and over again, uh, the whole piece is in this constant danger of falling apart because, you know, what if you get to the end of the, you know, and it's time for you to play your piece uh, at the concert or at the service and all of a sudden you're really nervous, you'll fall into these muscle memory techniques and suddenly it, it, it won't, the, the piece won't be there anymore and you'll have all these errors that you've never made before. And um, so, you know, I, I guess sort of my caveat to practicing all of your little pieces um, is that you do, you should put some of them in context a little bit. Um, And also, you know, with your advice as well, is that you really should try to deny yourself the the satisfaction of playing the entire piece until you can get all the little pieces all together there. Because um, once you start putting into context, you have started to really set it in stone and um, that can be a dangerous aspect for your, um, for your brain to sort of wrap your head around the piece.
0: You know, Daniel, I think uh, we have to point out another um, thing here, issue that we need also to practice sight reading, too, right? Mm-hmm. You need to Think unfamiliar pieces from the beginning until the end, without mm-hmm. starting. That's another part of our practice. But mm-hmm. that's another uh, goal, right? To, to learn new music, to learn to sight read, uh, to mm-hmm. become better at adapting to new situations unfamiliar environments
1: mm-hmm.
0: right right and if you constantly just learning uh, form measures at a time and constantly drilling 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 mm-hmm. it's it's not the same as as, as sight reading right mm mm-hmm. mhm exactly right? exactly yeah because i agree if you you will get presented with uh, another piece and you have to adapt quickly and learn maybe in a weekend or a hymn, sight-read a hymn, just, uh, just uh, your, your uh, organist would, would, would want to play it, or a choir director put it in front of you and you just have to do this, you know, uh, right away. Mm-hmm. Um, how important, Daniel, is um, music theory and harmony skills for you when you... Play the music and I treat it and practice. did you pay attention to that
1: um, if i 'm being honest I, I I need to be spending a lot more time uh, on harmonic analysis of pieces i I sort of sink into um, uh, in sort of very surface analysis of things, um, especially if you're working on like a, like a sonata or things like that, you're, you're going to be looking at sort of generalized things. like, this is the exposition. All right. If you notice in the left hand, this is where theme a comes back in. And um, you know, I, 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 I'll do a very sort of surface and I, and I, I don't really get into the, the harmonies nearly as much as I probably should. I think the last really serious um, harmonic dictation I ever did of a piece was when I played, oh gosh, maybe, I think I, maybe, maybe in maybe maybe right after college, I played uh, Messiaen's Du Parmenu, and I did a harmonic analysis of the Toccata section. Um, But I mean, it's, arguably, it's really helpful, because, you know, especially if you're good at music theory, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, there, again, it goes back to the, you know, singing Baroque music or playing Baroque music, there are rules. So um, having a really solid understanding of uh, harmonic analysis um, means that, you know, when one chord presents itself, and as you're getting closer to a <laughs> to a cadence, right, there's only so many options that are, uh, reason- I mean, if it's a good composer, and if they're not being strange, or, you know, wanting to really trick you, I mean, there are only a few places they can go um i would say that um one one composer that's kind of interesting to sight read every now and then is if you do any of the sonatas uh by renee becker and if you try to sight read like for instance if you do um i think it's maybe sonata number two I like think the fourth movement is the prayer I, is the prayer movement it's it does not Make sense harmonically it, ha- it, it, it sort of it always does these sort of false cadences like you think it's going to resolve at some point, but it just sort of keeps going it's a, It's a strange it, some of her, some of the music can be it's a little bit bizarre, but it's it's great sight reading music because it does really keep you on your toes
0: yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, the more variety you add in your uh, sight reading repertoire or even mm-hmm. practice repertoire, the better probably right you don't want to become a one sided Organist, a specialist, mm-hmm. although there is certain uh, um, benefit in being <laughs> a specialist, right? Uh, playing mm-hmm. just romantic music or just, let's say, Dutch music or uh, music of certain composers, being the best in the world at playing Krieger, right? Right. Or Messian. Um, there is a sen- certain, sometimes, uh, uh, benefit to that. But for general education, if you are just uh, starting out as an organist, I think it's better to have a variety, right? Oh, oh, yeah,
1: for sure. And, you know, I I, I would say to, to put off a specialty as long as you can. I mean, I think you should enjoy the things that you enjoy, but um, having sort of as much of a... Breadth of of knowledge of of the music will make you better at what you then eventually want to be super good at. I mean, if you want to be the next Rager expert, if you want to be the next Bach expert, it's probably important that you also have played Buxtehude and Mendelssohn and you know modern composers. You could do Locklear and Rorem, and you know, So I, I think you're right. I mean, think you need generally. You know, you should have at least an understanding of most of the styles that are written for the organ, um, and then you know, it, there there are a lot of advantages to being having a specialty, um, but being able to play in every style is a significant help to you in the future and especially in the professional world because you know the musical world um especially in america is is it's changing and it's it's gotten a lot wider in its interests uh, musically and um being a diverse musician is an absolute necessity uh, and especially as us organists, um, with an instrument that can be really difficult um, to play, and also to really as a, as an audience member can sometimes be difficult to um, to listen to. Uh, we always have to find ways in which we can engage um, the people in which we are playing for um, and for the the reasons in which we play um, so having a really broad understanding of the instrument and of the different styles is i mean that should be at least the number like the number one or number two goal of any organist
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's very basic knowledge right of of those uh, uh, stylistic differences between the historical periods renaissance right baroque classical romantic and modern at least five mm-hmm. styles right mm-hmm. we don't get into middle ages so much because right. it's, it's very limited right the, mm-hmm. it's huge is very limited Mm, but the Renaissance is wonderful uh, treasury of organ music, right? Baroque, mm-hmm. uh, even more, right? right. The, the, the golden, golden ages of, of, of organ repertoire. And I think uh, you're right, because, because when you get into real situations, uh, there are many benefits, right? When you 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 have a lot of repertoire in uh, under your belt, a lot of variety. Not mm-hmm. only because people will appreciate your recitals more if you have variety, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or in church service situation, you play uh, a few a few hymn preludes, uh, choral preludes based on the. Um, a Brahms setting and style, mm-hmm. or in Buxtehude setting, right? Uh, not right. not uh, just one unique style. Right. That That's one side. But another, I think, uh, advantage is that some people, you know, like to create, like to compose music and improvise, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can emulate the styles of mm-hmm. 10, 20, 100 composers that came before you, and, and the more music you emulate, their the The more original you become, right? Right. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, some of, some of the the best organists that I know are, are are master improvisers, and it's not just because they have an understanding of all these different musical styles. Based on, I mean, what really boils down to really common musical knowledge. I mean, understanding when you should bring in an exposition, you know, why does the five always go to one? I, all those things. It's also the way that they can emulate different styles to really make like a special a church service really sort of cohesive. You know, they might do a Baroque introduction to some hymn or like a really romantic one to another hymn or take a modern, you know, hymn that has sort of you know weird rhythms it has you know a, a bizarre time signature or whatever and and bring elements of the entire service into its presentation uh is really an engaging way to play definitely
0: yeah so i think our listeners now uh, i think understand or will understand the need to to study a variety at least five mm-hmm. styles right and at least. maybe maybe even more, because uh, German baroque and and uh, French baroque is not the same thing, right mm-hmm. and Italian and Spanish is also different right mm-hmm. um, when we get into historical schools of organ composition, we can get even lost uh, there right right yeah the exactly variety, right mm-hmm. the more yeah. the better so so daniel um we were, we just started and uh, get, uh, touched upon your. Your current activities, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How your uh, sight reading abilities and your training can really, uh, um, you know, be put into practice into church, uh, church, uh, church service situations. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what it is you do nowadays uh, in during your week and uh, uh, you know your responsibilities, basically? Sure.
1: I currently serve as the director of music uh, for a small um, Episcopal church uh, in Illinois, and I, before then, I, so this is, this is my um, uh, second year out of undergraduate, I got my bachelor's of music at Valparaiso University, and uh, right out after school, I was the principal organist um, for a a church in the city of Chicago. And um, that was sort of where I really, um, where reality sort of hit me in the face about knowing a lot of different styles because um, in that specific church and in lots of denominations really in America, especially, uh, they want a very wide variety of music. So, you know, suddenly I, you know, was playing jazz in the piano or jazz in the organ, which I'd never really done before, um, and playing in the gospel style as well. So, I mean, I was, I was playing in styles that I didn't really know and wasn't really especially comfortable with. And, um, what I learned from that experience was that, um, the organ is capable of doing every style, any style that you need. Uh, it's just, you know, you just have to, uh, approach it as a, just a new thing that you're learning, a new style of playing that you need to know. And, um, what ended up happening was uh, I found that I had all of these other experiences and skills that I wasn't really using um, just being a principal organist. So I found a job out in the suburbs of Chicago where I could take on a role as a director of music. And there I, I have, um, I have an adult choir that I conduct each week, and they sing for one service on Sundays. I have three services, and my assistant plays the nine fifteen service, and I play the eight a.m. the ten thirty. The ten thirty service it's a full uh, full Eucharist service um, with choir, and they sing uh, Psalm um, sometimes like an antiphonal piece, and then uh, obviously the offertory um, piece, and you know part of being an organist uh, in the States is really uh, a kind of a jack of all trades situation Mm -hmm. where uh, you don't necessarily have to have choral experience, but the more you have, and this goes back to us talking about, you know, singing in a choir is is good for you. Mm -hmm. It really is because um, you'll be thrown in front of a choir. You definitely will at any church you go to um, whether it is that you're conducting or if you're just playing, I mean, having that background is is really helpful. And I had always sort of had aspirations to um, be a choral conductor. Um, Eventually, you know, I'd like to work in a cathedral somewhere, but um, you know, for now I've, I found a lot of joy in uh, basically having my, my little choir that I have. I have 25 singers and um, but we do, pretty serious music, uh, for, um, for what we are really. And we have this just delightful 30 rank instrument and, um, you know, you can do a lot with a little, um, and my job really has been to sort of revitalize the program, Um, which has had a really storied past. I replaced uh, somebody who uh, he retired after 30 years. So, you know, I'm coming in as a very, very young person um, into a place that has had a a, just a titan of the music industry, of the organ industry, Um, and he defined their generations of Parishioners, so it's uh, it's been a really amazing transition into that, and I think all of the experiences that I've had as a choral musician, um, you know, going to college and having uh, sort of this uh, exposure to this huge variety of music, um, and then sort of being eased into the professional life by starting out as purely an organist. All I did was um, accompany chamber groups and choirs. I mean, I did nothing else. I didn't no choirs, nothing, and then transitioning finally into this job that I have now, um, really was a a wonderful transition into sort of professional life where, you know, I do, I do all the administrative work. I prepare the bulletins obviously each week. And, um, you know, I, I I think, um, one aspect of my professional life is that now I, I, I teach sort of basic piano now, um, which has been a a real pleasure because uh, I had a professor, my harpsichord teacher uh, in college always told me that um, you probably don't truly understand something until you've had to teach it to somebody. And yeah. I got to tell you, I thought I understood the piano pretty well, but now that I'm teaching it, it's a totally different game for sure to, uh, to really, I mean, cause all the things that we think about um, as musicians sort of becomes ingrained in us. It's like, it's part of who we are. And so having to sort of pull out that drawer and explain all the items in it, it's, it's surprisingly difficult. And any opportunity that uh, we as musicians have to explain to somebody or to cheat somebody about what we do um, really keeps you from being uh, sort of caught up in yourself. And uh, you can sort of uh, you, you can take a lot of things for granted for instance i 'm teaching a student right now she 's on her first um, Bach invention so it 's a really big deal for her and it 's a big deal for me and There are things like um, articulation that you know you would that we take for granted because it's so it 's been so ingrained in us that we 've taught it and practiced it but having to explain it to somebody new who's had no idea, has no concept of what we're talking about. It's, it's an amazing thing. And I think not only does it make me appreciate the things that I know, but it makes me appreciate the people who taught it to me and taught it to me so well um, that you're able to explain it. And so in terms of my professional life, um, I, I found a lot of joy in both being in sort of the active side of it, where I'm you know, I'm every week with a choir with, um, you know, full services, conducting and playing and all the hymns and all the service music, and then also getting to teach on the side, um, which both keeps me focused on what I'm doing and um, also um can sometimes help expose holes in your own knowledge. Because sometimes, especially when you have really younger kids, they'll try to ask you things and you'll realize that you don't have an answer for it because you can't just say, oh, that's just how it is because it's not. You have to explain all of it. And that's been probably one of the biggest delights of being um, a professional musician is that um, I, you, you find all these things that you haven't known yet and um, that you didn't realize you didn't know or that you realized that you knew so well you didn't know how to explain it. And it really makes you, uh, I, I think, a, a better musician and a, really a better person because th- this is how you sort of engage with people and engage, especially people with, who want to learn your instrument. Is that um, it's not just how it is, or it's uh, you got to explain all of it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's basically what's been going on.
0: So you mentioned this girl who is learning Bach's invention, right? Yep. And it- Perhaps asking, oh, teacher, could you demonstrate or explain what kind of articulation should I use? So mm-hmm. what would you tell her? Well, so... I mean, you have to understand, I mean, when you're talking to somebody
1: who has sort of no understanding or like basis of the knowledge, you can't talk about like the really small nitty gritty things. You have to come at it from this sort of the, the broad idea of Baroque music, like that the cadences are really important, um, that when you, especially when you're playing inventions, it's just the two voices. So it's not just right hand is stronger than the left hand, they're equal. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then taking that all down. And so basically what I've been doing is that we do really broad concepts Uh, about Bach and about Baroque music and articulation and then you start to sort of take things you know you sort of whittle it down until it's really we really are now at this point getting into the nitty-gritty so like for instance you know the closer intervals are apart um, the sort of the closer they are played together and the wider the intervals obviously the wider the space in between the two notes so she's been enjoying those um, those five one cadences at the end of um, the pieces where you know you have to do the big the big octave leap in one hand and you have to actually give it some pretty good space. Um, and so, I mean, that's how really I've been approaching it is that I've been doing sort of very broad concepts of the broke articulation, especially box articulation. And then as she's gotten stronger with playing the piece and just, just, I mean, just getting the notes, I mean, especially when you're first learning, just getting the notes is, is a a deal in and of itself. Then you're doing the articulation. Um, and then what we do is, um, you know, and on top of all this, right, the fingerings, obviously, I mean, she has the exact same fingerings, and I really drilled into her that, you know, with Bach, you got to do it the same way each time, because there are other elements to Bach besides just getting all the notes, is that it's this articulation thing. So really, our preeminent project has been getting the fingerings right, getting all the notes, because the more comfortable you are with all that, then we can really... <laughs> really get into the nitty-gritty of making sure that you know you're doing the right style like it's not too staccato but it's definitely not negato so it's getting those those v- wide variety of um, ranges of articulation down to that sort of exact science that Bach really is known for.
0: You know I like your idea Daniel about uh, uh, articulation when you say the closer the notes are uh, mm-hmm. The uh, closer the intervals are, right? The the closest in the in articulation is also, and the mm-hmm. wider the intervals, the 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 uh, the larger the distance between the notes, right? Basically, mm-hmm. um, because it reminds me as uh, singing, right? Basically, mm-hmm. uh, when you sing a uh, stepwise motion, you you don't have any strenuous activity it's very very easy right and mm-hmm. if you see an interval or uh, let's say arpeggio and then it becomes very difficult right so right. when we play, probably we have to remember how it is to to other instruments or the violin let's say when mm-hmm. we change positions for example or or uh, wind instruments also mm-hmm. when they do ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta with their lips uh, it's good to have um, analogous, right uh, from other life situations exactly
1: right and it's helpful that you know a lot of my students they also take other um instruments lessons so a lot of my students play violin and cello as well which is a real i mean which is really helpful because then you know especially when you play an instrument that's mainly in one clef that ends up being really helpful from like a music theory standpoint because suddenly you know you know they're trying to count all the little lines trying to figure out what notes it is and you know, the more confident they get with the the music the better um but i think you're also right when it comes to um you know how how they play as well it's um you know they're um i forgot what i was going to say We'll just we'll erase that part
0: talking about the the analogies right about analogies uh, between the let's say organ articulation and other instruments oh, right. And fingers, right and you were right. going hey yes <laughs> sorry
1: i know. i knew what it was now um, you know when it when it comes to them especially when they're so strong and playing other instruments you can you can describe, especially this goes back to having a general knowledge of music is is helpful. Then when you're trying to explain something to somebody who um, just needs that analogy to help them along is that you can say something like um, when you come into this phrase, you have to imagine it um, as if you're, you're doing an up bow, right? So if you're coming in, not on a strong beat, so not on one and three, obviously, right. You have to imagine you're going, right. So um, especially with string players, I found it's, it's incredibly helpful to them. If you say stuff like, come at this measure as if you're doing a really strong down bow into it. And they'll, you can feel them because especially if they've had a really good teacher, um, which generally I think most of my students seem to have really, I mean, good fundamentals with their string teachers as well, that um, it helps them uh, apply it when you can remind them of things of how all of this music can be related. Because, I mean, if you say things to a string player like, if you imagine this piece like a string ensemble, you know, how would your cello play this bass line? they would not play it just sort of blurry and all over the place. They would play it with just this particular articulation. And especially when you have to go from, you know, the E string all the way down to the, you know, to the furthest portion of the neck on the opposite string, right? I mean, you have to lift. I mean, you can't just blur, blur it all the way over. You have to do all of that. And so I, I'm probably, especially when I'm teaching my younger students, I use analogies probably way more than I should. I think especially... When I talk to them about practicing, <laughs> I always tell them that you have to brush your teeth every day, and if you don't brush your teeth, one day you can't make up with it by brushing harder the next day, <laughs> and it's, it's not bad. You definitely have
0: to practice every day, even if it's for a little bit. You should practice every day. Or well, there is another one uh, about vitamins, right? You forget for a week to take your vitamins, and then the next one, you take seven vitamins in a row.
1: <laughs> <So> oh no! <laughs> you
0: get uh, sick, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. It's all, always this middle way, right? The the sort of in between of extremes. No practice and uh, ten hours a day of practice, and you uh-huh. have to use the middle way, which is sustainable in the long uh-huh. run. Right.
1: When I when I first start out with my really beginner students who are just starting out, I mean, especially when you're like five years old and you can't tell a five year old. Well, I, I mean, I don't know how it is everywhere, but especially where I am, I mean, kids are insanely busy, and it, it, it boggles my mind the amount of scheduling that some of uh, my students have. You know, they'll have like ten minutes to themselves, like ever, in a week. And so, you know, their parents really push them to play the piano, which is, which is great to have that encouragement. But I always tell them that um, piano, it's not about practicing till you make perfect, right? It's, it's perfect practice. And it, it doesn't, the, the length of time doesn't matter. It matters that you accomplish something and that, or that you um, have started on something that you know that you can finish. And um, what I always tell my very, very beginner students is that at, when you first start out, You should absolutely do at least on your very worst day, your most busy day, 10 minutes of uninterrupted, no phones, no TV. You know, if if the piano is in like a, a high traffic area of your house, see if it can be moved. I always tell parents that, you know, if there could be a separate room or an area of the house that's not sort of frequently locked through that has the instrument in it, that's perfect because you want it to be just Uninterrupted time because um, as you sort of progress in music, if you're practicing every single day and especially at at an appointed amount of time, that it becomes like an issue for you if you don't practice because you'll feel like you haven't done it because you haven't. And um, I know that this is especially the case for me in college where um, when I was practicing so much that I found that if I didn't practice, like it felt like my entire day was completely ruined. I mean, if I was so busy that I couldn't practice, it felt like the whole day was complete waste. Like, why am I even bothering being here if I can't practice? So, um, you know, but I always tell students that, you know, 10 minutes at the very beginning. And then as you progress, you know, especially with my older students. Now I expect obviously a lot more out of them. You know, I expect, you know, your bare minimum of a half an hour of really good solid practice, not 10 minutes of sort of practicing and then 20 minutes of just goofing off. Right. I mean, it's 30 minutes of solid. You have a focused plan. You start with your scales. You do your arpeggios, you do your hand and virtuoso exercises, then you do your practicing, all of that is is a good amount of practicing for a day you mean you don't need to do seven hours a day or whatever i mean that's that's ridiculous you need to do your
0: focused energized practicing yes you're right daniel Um, people sometimes uh, don't appreciate the the value of this focus right they Mm -hmm. do uh, those multitasking activities right the phone is on the the rack and they're chatting with Facebook friends and they playing at the same time and somebody right. is writing to them and they're replying and they're mm-hmm. playing with the pedals at the same time. It's not um, not focused, right? It's not. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, remember this: what mastery means, right? You mm-hmm. have to practice at least ten thousand hours, right. ten thousand totally uh, during maybe ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of let's say this instrument of organ but as you say it has to be with intent with focus and uh, always striving to be better mm-hmm. yeah right exactly
1: mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. I, I i don't know how many of your your listeners are are teachers but i i, I think what is all this this is just like my sort of aside to everything else that we've been talking about one of my biggest complaints right now of my students is that a lot of them have metronomes on their phones, which is, I, I always explain to them. I mean, I do too as well but you shouldn't use it. You should use it as like a reference point or whatever. And then you should have a totally separate metronome that's not connected to the internet or Wi-Fi or anything, just a regular metronome that you can place on this music stand with you while you practice because anything else it's, I mean, it's, it's like an addiction. You'll, you'll definitely check your phone. If your metronome is also right there on it, right? You should have totally separate devices. I mean, just separate for 10 minutes. Nothing is happening. That's so important that you can't take, at least 10 minutes out of your day to just completely focus on practicing
0: yes you're right
1: so daniel did you have time to practice today uh, well my my day's just beginning so uh no I haven't, I haven't practiced yet but it's on my uh it's on my docket today
0: but you are you're planning right what will yes. you be practicing
1: today daniel well, so uh, I will be leaving for a vacation in a week, which is really exciting for me because I don't really take very many vacations. So I'm actually going to be practicing all of my hymns for the next two weeks so that they're really solid underneath my belt um, because uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not going to be able to practice all my way. So I'm going to be five days without practicing, which is going to be crazy. Um, and so I'll be spending most of today practicing the hymns and the service music and then picking out my pieces. And probably what I'll do is I'll pick uh, some of my uh, concert repertoire that I, I, you know, I've played before that's, um, you know, this is also a good sign that you've practiced something well enough is that you should be able to pick it up, dust off the parts that are um, the most challenging and then boom, you have a piece ready to go. And that's generally what I've been doing as I've been preparing for vacation Is I've been sort of looking through uh, my old repertoire. Um, like I'll probably play, you know, I might even play the Prelude and fugue in C, the um, 547 that might be might be a, a good one to to play. Um, I was going to tell you that uh, when I play that one, that's the one that has it's five forty seven. The um da 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 the that few. That few. Right. Yeah, me too. When when I when I uh, when I was first learning that, I um, I was in Germany and I turned pages for the uh, the organist at um, the St Thomas Church in Leipzig, and he uh-huh. was telling me that. Um, the organ part is only that fragment. He says that, that when that other voice comes in uh, with, with the the left hand, he plays all of that in the left hand. The pedal only plays the um, that fragment right, right sort of the, in the middle. He doesn't play any other or, uh, pedal part. It was really and, – and then he played like the, the other pedal fragments that didn't have subject material in them. That's all he played. And so – now that's how I play it. And now every time I play it, <laughs> especially now since I still take lessons, um, obviously I uh, do keep my own skills going. And every time I play that, my teacher is like, it sounds so weird to do it that way. But, you know, if you add a 16 foot in the hands, it sort of makes sense. But when you've grown so accustomed to learn, uh, to hearing it that way, um, it totally changes the way the piece sounds. But so that's how I play it is I play it with, when, that, when the fugue subject enters in the, in the pedal portion I, I play it with my left hand. So I'm playing basically two voices right in the in the one hand keeping or three voices really in the one hand as it comes in. So I just that was my one thing I was going to say <laughs> about that earlier but yeah.
0: Yeah. And and the the prelude itself it has a very very funny beginning. I think uh, uh, George Ricci told me once that um, his teacher right uh, the blind organist Helmut Walch told him uh, about and there are four measures, right? In this, then this the third one, and the fourth one is. I think arpeggios downward or or something. So mm-hmm. Balsha taught uh, Richie this way: zingen, tanzen. Spielen and Lachen. Basically, (laughs) four German words, uh, sing, uh, play, dance, and laugh. All those difficult, uh, uh, interesting uh, melodic ideas are uh, connected in the piece imitatively and contrapuntally. And you can even imagine which one is is, uh, laughing, which one is playing, which one is dancing this way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can label them basically. Mm-hmm. So wonderful, uh, delightful conversation, Daniel. Today, before we end, um, I was going to ask you uh, if, if you, if you had a chance to, for example, to to tell your student what would be the first step to to be, become a better organist. Let's say, what would the first thing come to mind? to know the
1: instrument that you're playing. Uh, The organ is not a universal instrument. There's thousands of them and they're all different. There's no two instruments are the same. They have the same components, but be aware that the instrument is different for each one. And
0: uh, yeah. Instrument. To know the instrument inside out, right? And what about the second? What would be the second prerequisite? Pick one thing
1: to be... Uh, really good at if you're if it's going to be hymns, be the best at hymns. If it's going to be Bach, be the best at Bach, uh, and don't ever let the other things that you have learned uh, just fall to the wayside. Um, everything is always connected, and the more that you can apply your broad depth of knowledge to your uh, singular uh, focus, um, will be the best thing at all uh, that you can be as an organist.
0: Uh huh. And number three, what would be number three? Hmm. Number
1: three. Uh, not everybody likes the organ. Part of our job is to convince them that it is. It's a great instrument, and it's criminally underappreciated. It's a fantastic instrument. It's a difficult instrument, and it's a delightful instrument to listen to. So the better you are preparing your music, um, the more time we can spend um, showing people the, the joy and passion that um, we as organists have
0: for our instrument. Basically, you become an advocate of this instrument, right? Exactly. Yeah. The, that's how you get more fans, right, from from the lovers of organ music. Uh, mm-hmm. You never forget that they are not organists. They don't know what you know, right? Right. And you'll be um, um, empathic, right, and feel how they feel, right, and talk their language, too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Wonderful. Uh, Daniel, I was thinking a little bit different when you when you said n- know your instrument really well. Then the second mm-hmm. step I thought you would say is then know your music, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then number three would be know yourself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you went another
1: direction. Yeah, I was. <laughs> th- I mean, you should you should know your music, and you definitely should know yourself, but. You also should know the realities of of being an organist.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, Now people uh, of course would like to know uh, about you a little bit more and want to visit your site. Can you Mm -hmm. uh, give our listeners a link where they could find you and your work online?
1: Sure. Uh, So you can find a link to my recordings on SoundCloud. If you search my name, Daniel Segner, Uh, I also have a Facebook page, uh, which is Daniel Segner, comma organist, and you can find. Uh, I, I do frequently do my concert announcements. Uh, I'll, I'll sometimes take pictures of the organs that I'm playing around the city, and uh, you can find that. I, I believe the link is just Facebook.com/slash Dan Segner, and I can. I, I'll give a link to you, and easy to click okay. on from
0: Facebook, there. Facebook, SoundCloud. Uh, what is the address of your church? Does does it have a website address? Yes.
1: Uh I believe it's just uh it's Saint Mark's Episcopal Church. Uh yeah, oh sorry, it's Saint Mark's Glen Ellen, all one word. So this is in Glen Ellen, Illinois. Uh so it's uh S T M A R K S G L E N E L L Y N dot org. And I will mm-hmm.
0: I will send you a link to that as well. I will put everything into the show notes. Perfect. So so much uh, daniel it's been a real pleasure to talk to you real uh, virtual cappuccino together, right
1: yeah, of course, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and i I, I love your podcast
0: great uh, I'm sure our listeners uh, will be inspired to to become better organists at uh, getting to know their instrument really well and uh, become a really Good at one thing, right? Be mm-hmm. become like number top, number one, uh, or top uh, maybe number two in the world of something, right? And mm-hmm. then, of course, uh, as you say, um, number three was uh,
1: be an advocate for your
0: instrument, be an art. advocate. With, with outsiders, of course, never forget right. the, they don't know everything that and become uh, an advocate of of, of organ uh, art. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I hope we meet again and keep creating, keep keep sharing your work. It's it's so inspiring. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate it. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you online really soon.